Thank you so much, team. You may be seated. Thank you. Appreciate you leading us in worship this day. Back in my hometown of Newcastle, Indiana, there was one large employer in the entire city. city had maybe 20, 22,000 residents, but the Chrysler Corporation employed about three or 4,000 people. So it was a huge part of that uh, city, that economy. And uh, I was grateful for two summers while I was in college to have the opportunity to work there, the Chrysler plant. My dad worked there for 33 years. And uh, then he retired uh, just a year or so before I went to college. And then a couple of summers in the college, I worked, uh, worked there. I was grateful for the job. It was a well-paying job. And I recall the first day that I worked at the Chrysler plant, I was assigned to what was Department 95. Department 95. Now, that was the department that was a huge shock absorber line. And so it started with this rolled steel and then over a period of, I guess, three to 400 feet, it made the shock absorbers with the parts coming all along the line. Well, the first day I walked in, I was assigned to that department, and the foreman asked me if I had ever operated a lathe. And I said, well, of course I've operated a lathe, know all about them which meant for one week in my sophomore year, me and a couple classmates in what was called industrial arts class, did you ever remember that, worked on a tiny lathe for about one week. So I was an experienced operator, I told the foreman. <laughs> Little did I know that that lathe was the beginning of that three or 400 foot long assembly line for shock absorbers. And so the foreman said to me, now the key to this is, the machine does all the work, but the key to this is this gauge that he gave me. This gauge. Every so often you have to measure the casings that come out of this. And the machine does all the work, all you have to do, just make sure, measure every so often, make sure that it's putting out the right product. And I said, no problem, got this. The experienced lathe operator that I was. <laughs> Let me tell you, the machine did not do all the work. <laughs> and it wasn't long, a couple of hours, I was trying to make sure I was doing things correctly. And the foreman came to see me. The whole line 
was backed up because the casings for the shock absorbers were not starting with the right length, right gauge. And so quickly, the foreman found another job befitting my capability. <laughs> I found myself at the other end of the shock absorber line where they came off nice and hot from the welding and you had to take them and stack them on pallets. And they were incredibly hot and the weld had this terrible smell. That area of the plant was about 110 degrees. And for the next three months, that's where I found myself. I could smell that night and day. I had a three-month-long headache. <laughs> but I learned something. I learned something. I learned that everything in that factory needed to be aligned with the prototype. They had a prototype for what they were building and everything had to be aligned. Everything had to be measured against that prototype. And here's what I want us to do for the next few months. We'll be doing this here in the auditorium, also in the hub. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that I believe is the prototype of the faith. The prototype of the faith. It's in this passage that we learn what it means to define the life of a follower of Jesus. That prototype of what it means to be defined as a follower of Jesus is not up for discussion. <laughs> it's been determined by the manager of the whole operation, right? And we're going to take time to see how, how we measure ourselves about this life on mission, this life of following Jesus. And so today, I want us to turn to this prototype of what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, defined by the master builder himself, Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to begin this series today that we are calling Life in the Kingdom. Life in the Kingdom. Looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Commonly known as... What? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. It's been called that for centuries. As far as we can determine, it was first referred to as the Sermon on the Mount by the church father Augustine back in the late 4th, early 5th century. He referred to this passage as the Sermon on the Mount. But before we dive in, we always have to make sure we look at the context. The context in which this sermon is placed. And of course, you find it here in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, of course, in our Bibles is the first 
of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And the gospel of Matthew was primarily written to Jewish people. It was written primarily to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all the promises made about the coming of the Messiah, that he was the rightful king of the Jews. That's the reason that the most repeated statement in the Gospel of Matthew is this, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. Something would happen to Jesus, Jesus would do something or say something, and then we have the quote by Matthew that it might be fulfilled what was written in the prophets concerning the Messiah. And also, Matthew presents Jesus, listen carefully, he presents Jesus to the Jewish people as the greater Moses. As the greater Moses. You see, Moses himself made a prophecy. It's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Moses said that God would raise up another prophet for the people like himself. And to him, they would listen. Moses was looking across the centuries by the revelation of the Holy Spirit and he was seeing the one coming who would be the leader of the people like him but far, far greater than him. And just think about how Jesus is like Moses. Or really we should say Moses is like Jesus, right? Moses had a unique deliverance as a child, small child, just as Jesus had a remarkable deliverance as just a small child. Remember, Moses was sent to a place of obscurity, the land of Midian, to prepare him for his ministry. Jesus was sent to the obscure area of Nazareth to prepare him for his ministry. Moses came out of the wilderness to speak for God to his people and on behalf of his people. Jesus came out of the wilderness speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, for the people of God. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the words of the Lord to share the covenant message. And here we see Jesus walking up to the top of a mountain, sitting down, and sharing from himself as the living word of God, the words of the new covenant. The message of the new community 
the kingdom, the new community with the new commandments from the Lord of the covenant himself. So here we have Jesus. Consider the scene, verse 1. Jesus saw the crowds. If you look at the verses just before in chapter 4, this is not just a few people. This is not just a few score or a few hundred of people. This is thousands of people who have thronged to hear Jesus. When you see these movie presentations of Jesus sitting down and teaching a few dozen people Put that out of your minds. It was nothing like that. Thousands and thousands and thousands came to hear him. And he sits down on this mountain. Large, large hill slopes down to the Sea of Galilee. He sits down as the rabbis would sit down. And he taught his disciples. It's amazing to go to that place. I've been there several times. It's a natural amphitheater. Someone can stand on that hillside and speak just in conversational voice and their words are heard all the way down that sweeping hillside. It's an amazing thing to experience. Lord willing... I'll be there next April. Would love to have you go with me. (laughs) Excuse the shameless commercial I'll just put in there for that trip. (laughs) But here's Jesus surrounded by the people. And he begins to share the core principles of his kingdom. And that's what I want us to see today. He shares the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. And he does it by using one word eight times. Maybe you heard this as Mindy was reading the passage for us. Eight times he uses the word blessed. Blessed. Now the word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. And it means happy, yes, but more than happy. Our word happy doesn't quite capture it. The word makarios, blessed, has perhaps the the best translation in our, our language today. It might be flourishing. Flourishing. To be blessed is to be spiritually flourishing. It It takes us back in mind to Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not, what? He does not stand with sinners, walk in the way of sinners. He does not sit like in the seat of the scornful. But he delights in the law of God He meditates in God's message. And this man or this woman is like what? A tree planted by the river of water that's bringing forth its fruit season after season. 
This is what Jesus is talking about. The blessed person is a person regardless of the desert-like surroundings. A blessed person is a person who because of the rivers of God's grace is flourishing in the desert, producing fruit in his or her life, flourishing in spite of the culture, but in the midst of the culture. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he describes the blessed person. Because of living water flowing from the source of living water, which is Jesus. All you are thirsty, remember he said, come to me and drink. He's the fountain of living waters. And so what Jesus is describing here is the life that is truly life. He's bringing the gospel. Remember, he comes preaching the gospel. Repent. Turn from your empty life. Turn from your way of sin. Turn to me. Here's the good news. I will give you the life that is really life. And so he brings this message. And that's what this sermon is about. The life that is really life. Life that is really life. Life lived in the kingdom of God for the king himself. That's living. Not just existing. And Jesus gives eight statements about people who flourish in this kingdom living. Numbers 1 through 4 describe how through the grace of God, these people enter the kingdom. And then number 5 through 8, how they experience and how they express the kingdom. So we're going to quickly look at these eight times that Jesus said blessed. The first four describe how the Lord works in a person's life so they become a person who is blessed as they enter the kingdom. And then numbers five through eight, Jesus says this is what the blessed life looks like. This is how a person who is a follower of me, knows me, is experiencing and expressing this life that is really life. Now, this is just the preamble. So we're going to go quickly, but don't worry because we've got several Sundays to come back because all of these eight statements, everything else Jesus has to say flows out of these eight. So notice how Jesus describes a flourishing life. And it may seem at first a little upside down, but guess what? It's right side up. This world's upside down. Number one, Jesus said, blessed are the beggars. Blessed are the beggars. Verses two and three. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the word poor here is a word which means 
abject poverty. It doesn't just mean, you know, too much month at the end of your paycheck. No, it means much more than that. It means abject poverty. It's the same word which was used to describe Lazarus who sat outside the gate of the rich man and begged for some crumbs from his table. Same word. But notice, it's a person who is poor in spirit. They're blessed because of what? They are blessed because of what they recognize, that they have a desperate need. That greater than their physical need could ever be is their spiritual need. They're blessed because they're poor in spirit. By God's grace, they know they need spiritual life. And because they know they need it and only God can give it, they begin to cry out and to beg to God, beg God for spiritual life. Why are they blessed? Why do they flourish? Because they receive what? They receive what they beg for. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice, it does not say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It says theirs present tense is the kingdom of heaven because it is in the heart of someone who knows that he or she is in spiritual poverty and cries out to the Lord for his spiritual life. It is in that place of poverty that the king builds his palace. The king comes to live in his or her heart. And guess what? Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever the king is. And if the king is in your heart, your heart is the kingdom. But friend, it's just begun because the kingdom that right now, for those who are hungering for the Lord, those who know their poverty of spirit, when they cry out to God, not only do they have the kingdom in their heart, the kingdom is ahead of them. The kingdom of heaven is their home. <laughs> what happens? We live in that, what the reformers called the already, not yet. Already, I'm in the kingdom, but I'm not yet fully there as I'm going to be there someday. Here's what I want you to notice, brothers and sisters. It's only the poor who enter the kingdom. Only the poor in spirit enter the kingdom. Only the poor enter the kingdom and listen up. Only the proud are excluded. Only the proud are excluded. If you do someday go to Israel, you must go to Bethlehem. You must see the church of the Holy Nativity built over the cave where as far back as the second century, 
it, believe, it was believed in one of those caves that Jesus was born. But after Jerusalem came under the control of invaders, they turned the church of the nativity into a stable. They say, the Son of God was born in the stable. Let's just make this church our stable. And they would ride their horses into it. But just a few centuries ago, that big entrance to the church was walled up except for one little door. And that one little door is about that high. And the only way you go into the church of the nativity is to bow your head. And there's just room for one person at a time. Friend, I want to tell you, that's the way everybody's got to come into the kingdom. You got to bow to the king. The proud cannot enter. You think you're doing fine on your own? Then on your own is where you will remain forever. Only the proud are excluded. But the humble, he will not despise. That's a work of God. Blessed are the beggars. And because they know their spiritual poverty, what do they do? They mourn. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the mourners. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word mourn here is one of nine words used in the New Testament for sorrow. Nine words from the Greek, translated into sorrow. But this word means the deepest of sorrow. It is reserved for someone who is grieving the loss of a dear loved one. The deepest sorrow. This is a deep grief. Over what? Over verse 3. I'm a beggar in my spirit. I have no spiritual life. I am a sinner. I mourn over this sin. I, it's a grief over sinfulness. And friends, what? This, this grief is a gift. It is the goodness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. It is a gift of God that leads us to repent of our sins. It is a grace from God when we recognize that we desperately need His saving grace. Amen. And we mourn over that. Mourning over sin leads to what? Comfort. They will be Comforted. What did Jesus say when he started his ministry, his first messages? We read about them in Luke chapter 5. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61, 
where it says that the Messiah would bring good news to the poor and he would comfort all who mourn. What's Jesus saying here? I am coming to you as your king. I'm bringing good news to you. Yes, you who are beggars in your spirit because of your spiritual bankruptcy. You who are mourning over your sins, I have come to comfort you with my salvation. My friend, isn't our Lord a great comforter? Isn't that amazing? What did Jesus call the Holy Spirit who he would send in his name? I will send the comforter. And how we need the comforter, right? Because our hearts in this world are broken. This is a veil of tears through which we walk. But I read in my Bible this promise. God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. Comforted to never weep again. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the beggars. And because of this recognition, they flourish because they are broken. Blessed are the broken. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now here is the time, listen carefully, when according to the world, what Jesus says is ridiculous. As a matter of fact, the Romans did not believe that this kind of brokenness, they did not believe that this kind of meekness was a virtue at all. They actually considered it a vice. And that continues to this very day. People who are meek are considered by the world a lot of the time to be what? Weak. So many people read after the noted author, Ayn Rand, who wrote Atlas Shrugged and some others. She actually said that Jesus' words were some of the most vile ever uttered. And she considered Christian morality poison. Because her philosophy is self. Ultimate liberty. Ultimate liberty to be yourself. Which my friend Ultimate liberty to be what you are is the worst form of slavery. To be slaves to yourself. If you know yourself as you are, don't be mistaken. Meekness is not weakness. This word here for meekness 
is a word which was used of a horse that's been broken to the bridle. Is the horse any weaker? No. Just as strong as ever. But now this horse is under control. This horse is submissive. That's what this word means. Submissive. Submissive to the Lord. It's the kind of spirit that says this. Not my will, but thy will be done. That's the reason in the only terms that Jesus ever used to define himself. You know what he called himself? He said, this is who I am. I am meek and lowly. I am meek and humble. You say, well, I just don't know if meek and humble is a great virtue. You might want to take that up with Jesus. You'll be talking to him someday about it. Notice, why people say, well, you can't be meek. Meek people never win. Meek people never get ahead. Meek people don't go for the brass ring. They never achieve. (laughs) Well, my Bible tells me that those who follow Jesus are not conquerors, They're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer through Christ. And notice what it says. Blessed are the meek, for they will conquer the earth. Is that what your Bible says? No, it doesn't say that. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. Why is that so wonderful? Because if you inherit something, it means you're a child of the owner. What a privilege to inherit the earth because you are a son or daughter of the Most High God who owns it all. Inherit the earth. And that's what's going to happen someday when we inherit the full expression of the kingdom to come. When we are ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ forever, world without end, we'll inherit the renewed heavens, the renewed earth, worshiping our Lord, restored to paradise, As the father's children. Won't that be amazing? But the reality is what? Already we are the children of God. Yet it does not appear what we shall be. What does John say? It has not appeared what we shall be. But we know that when he comes. We shall see him as he is. And we shall be like him. Wow. Don't you hunger for that? Don't you hunger for that? To be more like the Lord? And that's the reason. If you do, you're blessed. Look at number four, verse six. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the hungry. Verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Money? 
fame, prestige, power? No. When you hunger for those things, that's a curse. That's not a blessing. Blessed are those, flourishing are those who the great hunger of their life is for righteousness. They will be comforted. What is this? This is desperation. This is, this is a hunger that's, this is a starvation hunger. This is not just hungry. This is even way beyond hangry. You know what I'm saying? Hangry. This is starving. Starving for what you see is so delicious, so wonderful, so amazingly good. God himself. And you hunger for him for his righteousness seeking God because to seek righteousness listen to seek righteousness is ultimately to seek God not seeking self-righteousness that is darkness and sin but To seek a righteousness which is not your own. A righteousness by faith in Christ. An alien righteousness. A righteousness from God received by grace through faith. That is a work of God. And blessed is that person who hungers for God. Because what will be the wonderful experience? The promise is this. They shall be what? Satisfied. They shall be satisfied. You know, there's a wonder of joy. That, that's almost a, it's almost a contradiction of terms. But if you know the Lord deeply at all you know what I'm about to say it's it's a satisfied dissatisfaction you're satisfied with Jesus he's the great satisfaction of your heart but you're dissatisfied because you want to know him more you want to know him more he's quenched your thirst but you're thirsty for more David understood this King David wrote a song about it. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Great Christian pastor and writer of a couple of generations ago, A.W. Tozer, he wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. I encourage you with that. The Pursuit of God. 
But here's what he said in the, in the preface to that book. Listen carefully. To have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. If you're not want to tell you, that's never going to end. Because I really believe that eternity for a follower of Jesus is just going to be continual surprises of his love and grace. It's just going to be one eternal succession of Christmas mornings. Oh! Oh! Why? Because eternity is not long enough for us to learn about the wonders of his love. What an ocean our God is. An ocean of grace. There are no bottoms to the depths of his love. These four qualities are produced by grace. Listen carefully. This is not what you do to get into the kingdom. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to be poor. You have to mourn. You have to be broken. You have to be hungry to get into the kingdom. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. God, by his grace in Christ moving in your heart, will reveal to you and bring to you a poverty of spirit, a mourning for your sin, a brokenness of your self-reliance, a hunger for him, and he satisfies that. That's the gospel. My friend, you see, the work of God begins in a soul when a soul begins to recognize I am not right with God. I need the Lord. I want to tell you, my friend, if that thought has come into your mind, if that for a moment has entered your mind, do not turn away from that. Like a miner in a mine collapse, if you see one ray of light, you dig toward that light with all your heart. That is from God. Whatever it is that is calling you toward God, listen, that's not the devil. And that's not some kind of psychological trauma. That is God's grace because he wants you to come to him out of that darkness into his marvelous light. You keep headed for the light. He is the light. They are blessed. They flourish. And guess what happens to people who are blessed and flourish? You know what they don't do? They don't say, wow, am I blessed or what? Look at me flourishing here. Would you look at these branches? You ever seen fruit like this before? No, 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 no. No. It's like this. People who are flourishing begin to express and experience 
God's grace. And it flows from them. Number five, notice, here's the change. People who've come into the kingdom by God's grace because they're poor in spirit, mourning, broken, hungry. They find all of the resources in Christ alone. But they are changed. So now they become what? Merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 7. For they shall receive mercy. You know what the Romans called mercy? The culture in which Jesus and his earliest disciples lived, you know what they called mercy? They called it a disease of the soul. Jesus said, Blessed people have experienced mercy from God. What is mercy? Mercy is pity which causes the person in mercy to meet that need out of pity. But action, pity in action. Blessed are those who have received the mercy of God They are blessed because they begin to express God's mercy. They they become part of the river. They're not a dead sea receiving all of the blessings of God, but no outlet. No, streams of living water are flowing into them and flowing out of them. So they've received God's mercy, so they become merciful people. It's well said, mercy flows from mercy. Mercy flows from mercy. Mercy has flowed into our hearts. Mercy flows from our hearts. When, When you pray and you mean it with all your heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said the man that prayed that prayer from his heart, he went home justified, right with God. But I can guarantee you, he went home now as a merciful person. Because mercy flows from mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, as a sinner who's found mercy, will be merciful to others. Something desperately wrong. Desperately wrong with a person who says he or she is a Christian but is not known to be a merciful person. Something's desperately wrong. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed people, flourishing people, a work of flourishing grace in their hearts produces a desire to be pure. A person who has experienced the forgiveness of sins, cleansing, the purifying work of God, doesn't say, 
Thank you, Lord, for giving me my ticket to heaven. Now leave me alone for the next 40 or 50 years while I live like I want. And then have the pastor stand over my coffin and tell everybody how he knows you're in heaven because you prayed that prayer which never once touched your life. You see, true work of God's grace purifying our hearts produces a desire to be pure. Are we as pure as we want to be? No. Do we fail terribly, often, awfully? But it produces a desire to pursue holiness without which no one will see God. Not seeking purity so you can say you're better than others, but seeking purity because you want to be like Him, to be like Jesus, who is pure. What a promise. Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall see God. It's very interesting here. This word... Shall see God. Shall see. It's interesting. It's future, passive. Very rare in the New Testament. Future, passive. Here's what, how you'd literally, it's kind of clunky, but here's how you would translate it literally into English. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be seeing God for themselves. <laughs> They shall be seeing God. What they see will be impacting them. And so the idea is, really the idea is perceiving God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be perceiving God. The the cataracts are gone. (laughs) You, You see him. And you see him everywhere. Years ago, one of the first cosmonauts went into space, came back, jokingly boasted, I was up in the space, I was up in space, and I didn't see God anywhere. How much different the attitude of the Apollo 8 astronauts who on Christmas Eve, 1968, as they traveled through space, read these words back to all the nations of the earth. What did they read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, void. Darkness was over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light. One man went to space, saw God nowhere. Other men went to space, saw God everywhere. Blessed are the pure in heart. They see God. Do you you see God? Do you see 
that is in this world that has so much wrong with it, do you see every day, this is my Father's world. And though the wrong be off so strong, God still is ruler yet. This is my Father's world. I love what the little girl said looking up to the sky one night. She said to her dad, Daddy, if heaven is so beautiful on the wrong side, imagine what it must look like on the right side. Yeah. The blindest eyes of all are the eyes they can't see. The heavens declare the glory of God. This world shows his handiwork. Out of this grace, people become peacemakers. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers first have peace themselves. You can't be a peacemaker until you've had peace yourself. What did Paul say in Romans 5, 1? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you have peace with God, then you can know the peace of God. And then you can share the peace that comes from God. Become a peacemaker. What is Jesus called? This one teaching this sermon to us, what is he called? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, what? Prince of peace. He's called us to be instruments of his peace. How are you an instrument of God's peace? When you share the good news of Jesus, that there is a savior, that Christ receives sinners, That Christ did not come to save the healthy, but he came to seek and to save those who are lost. To give himself a ransom for sinners. You share that good news. What are you doing? You're, You're making peace. Peace. That's the peace that this world needs. It's the peace with God. Not peace among the nations, as wonderful as that would be, but that will never last until the Lord of the nations comes. And he rules with a rod of iron. But till then, we are sharing the gospel of peace. Friends, listen, the gospel's not bad news. (laughs) It's good news. We say, well, what if they don't accept it? What if they make fun of me? Well, then it's just all about us, isn't it? It really matters more what people think about us than what they think about Jesus. Peacemakers make peace through evangelism. They make peace through encouragement. Peacemakers don't like to see brothers and sisters at war with each other. Peacemakers don't take a kick and get weird joy out of caustic Facebook posts. They're not in a hurry to pick up the phone, send a text. They're not trying to take sides. They're people who want to knock down walls. Peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? 
they will be given the highest honor. Sons of God. The word here, sons of God, doesn't mean men. Sons of God here is a term of honor. The honored child, peacemakers, are honored because what? They're like their heavenly father. They're like their savior who's the peace himself. The prince of peace. And what's a great honor that comes to peacemakers? You know, one of the greatest honors that comes to peacemakers is this. Number eight. Blessed are the persecuted. This is what happens to peacemakers. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Thank God it's not true. It could be true except for Jesus. Falsely. And they, why? What's the reason for the blessing and being persecuted? Because it's on my account, Jesus says. You're, you're blessed when you're persecuted. And you're not persecuted when you get in trouble for doing a lousy job. That's not persecution. You're not persecuted when you don't make the team. Somebody else does. You're not persecuted when... Others make more than you are. That's not persecution. Persecution is on account of Christ. Because of your testimony for Christ. And Paul said this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Paul told the Philippians. He's telling us. It's given, been given to you this honor. Not only to believe on Jesus. But to suffer for his sake. If you follow Jesus, you will flourish. But listen, the wind of adversity will always be blowing. But you can rejoice. Why? Because there's a reward awaiting. <laughs> Great is your reward in heaven. You'll be rewarded. They say, well, I, I don't want to live for reward. Well, do you run the race with the intention of coming in last? I, I was on track team once. I came in last several times. It's not fun. You... You press toward this mark. Press on toward Jesus. And even if you are persecuted for following Jesus, you rejoice in your relationship to your ancestors. They persecuted the prophets the same way, Jesus said. I heard a story once about a donkey. Donkey was being ridden by a farmer. Somehow the donkey got into a gate that led him into a prestigious horse race. And the donkey got right up 
into the paddock. Just before the gun sounded, the donkey looked to the left, and then the donkey looked to the right, and then the donkey said this, Well, I may not win this race, but I'm in mighty fine company. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. Follow the king. Run for the king. Listen. Follow the king. Run for the king. You will win this race. And you're in mighty fine company. Let's bow our heads now. Lord, as we come now to your presence, we thank you for your blood. We thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. And Lord, I pray now that we'll understand, even as we come to this time of communion together, that this ordinance reminds us that you satisfy all of our needs. You brought the gospel of the kingdom by going to the cross, suffering for our sins, rising victorious over death and hell, And you live forevermore. It's because of you. Your gospel. That we can flourish. Lord in this moment. May we thank you. For the blood.